we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So it's on the screen as well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, good evening. It's so good to be able to open God's Word with you. And before we just get into the passage for tonight, I think it's worth thanking Jacob for putting all of this on for us, wherever he is. It's a... It's a massive effort to put this all together, especially during COVID. Weekend aways are difficult at the best of times, but with all the extra restrictions and phone calls and all the handling and all of that, it takes a fair bit. So if you can, personally thank him as well. And why don't we thank our musos as well while we're at it for the time they put into it. It's, um, it's so amazing to be served by such a great uh, group of musicians as well, and uh, I really look forward to the rest of tonight and the rest of the weekend. The other thing I wanted to mention was um, it is such a blessing to be able to get away together, and we are so fortunate to have been able to pull this off. We, we just we booked the date in faith and then um, just stepped out and hoping that it would work out, and here we are. I noticed people getting a little bit loosey-goosey with the masks as well as the, as the weekend rolls on, but that's good to see as well. But also, that's not official, by the way, if anyone asks, particularly from the campsite. Um, but the other thing as a parent, I just want to thank you for hanging out with not just our kids, but all of the kids today. It's such a blessing for them to be a part of a community. They they're so pumped. They're so pumped they're on the brink of passing out most of the time. <laughs> And, um, and they're going to be perishing tonight. But they, they love it. They're just, they've been so into it. And yeah, every now and then they get a ball in the face. But they love being a part of the action and how well you kind of bring them into that. In, in the high school, the only older mentors that I kind of had was, because I was a skateboarder, it was older skaters. And they were potentially some of the worst influences that I had in my life at the time. And it, was, it took me a long time in kind of growing up to see what a train wreck many of their lives were. But for lots of kids... They're just looking for some older crowd to adopt them. And these guys have you guys as a church family, like Jacob was speaking about this morning, to look up to and see men and women of faith in the age bracket above them living out life for Jesus. So that's a massive blessing to be a part of as a church community. So I can't wait for the rest of the weekend for that reason. And I can't wait to get into the passage tonight because I've never spoken on this passage, but I cannot tell you how many times I've turned to this part of the Word of God for comfort and for strength, and found it. And maybe, maybe last year, more than many others. We're going to look at Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, that Felicity just read out. And it's a call to persevere, and it's a call to fix your eyes on Jesus, and to cast off every weight and hindrance and sin that would have you not run the race for Jesus. And it matters because what we look at affects the way we run. I was even thinking about this earlier this week. We're at the church and we're setting up for hands and feet and I was with Dad putting out the mirrors. So that's for the dance school later in the week. And I'd set them out so that these giant mirrors were facing towards the hall and Dad said, no, turn them around. It makes people nervous. And I was like, 
Oh, yeah, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're ever sitting in a restaurant and there's a giant mirror across the back of you know, whoever you're sitting with, it's very distracting, isn't it? You'd love to maintain eye contact, but you keep looking at yourself or other things that are happening there. But more than that, it can be unsettling when you're just looking at yourself constantly in the mirror. Not only that, but imagine this. As I was thinking about this, I thought, imagine what a cruel and unusual punishment it would be to lock someone in a house with floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall mirrors for a week. Just ima- See, everyone groans even as you say that. Just imagine your state of mind after walking out of that room after being in there for a week. Let's even say a day. Imagine, imagine how disheveled you would be. It would rupture your sanity, wouldn't it? I think in that, God has maybe built a clue into his creation that we were not made to look at ourselves. That actually thriving and goodness doesn't come from constant fixation about ourselves, but we are called to look to something or someone greater. That there is a clue in creation that you were not designed for endless introspection and for constant looking at yourself, but to look to someone who is greater than you. And in Hebrews, it's, it's very clear who the object of our focus is meant to be. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That to look to him brings vitality, brings energy, brings revitalization to the Christian life, brings strength, brings perseverance, and brings joy to go for the long haul. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's word today, that we would be called to fix our eyes on Jesus amidst the many and myriad distractions that Satan has set up to have us look anywhere but. That we would be a people individually and as a community who look to Jesus, that we might run the race with perseverance and with joy. And so I'm going to pray with all seriousness, knowing that God hears us, that we would hear his word and apply it. Let's pray. God, we are inclined by familiarity to pray just out of habit and to not consider the fact that you are the God of the universe who hears his people's prayers. That we often think of you as too small. That we forget that that vast body of water behind us would not even fill the palm of your hand, let alone the oceans of the entire world. That everything, mountains, worlds, galaxies, the entire universe sits in the palm of your hand. And yet you hear our prayers, and like a father, you love to answer them. And so, Father, we pray that you would answer this prayer tonight. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus to lay aside every weight and sin that entangles, to run the race with perseverance, and to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners that we may not grow weary. Strengthen us for the race this year and for the rest of our lives that we might honor Christ with all that we have. And we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, if you noticed, Hebrews 12 starts in this way. It starts with the since. And it's referring back to the chapter before it. It says, because of what you've just read, presumably in chapter 11, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The sins here points back to this great cloud of witnesses that we have in chapter 11. The author of Hebrews goes through a number of examples in the Old Testament of people of faith, people who trusted in God. He talks of Abel, who in faith offered an offering that was pleasing, of Noah, who, prepared for, who in faith prepared for a flood. By faith, Abraham went to a different land and had no idea what was going to happen, but he trusted God. By faith, Rahab welcomed God's people and assisted them in coming into God's promised land. And on and on, men and women who had faith in God. And there's this long list, and by the end of it, he says, look, there's so many to mention, I can't even get through all of them. And even though they died waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled in Jesus, they're examples of faith, one after the other. People who trusted their entire lives to God, even to the point of death, they were people of faith. And so the author says, since you're kind of surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, run. And the idea of the metaphor here is of a running race. The Christian life is like a race. It has a finish line, an end point, and after that, a great reward and a celebration. And he's saying it's like that. We receive the prize of eternal life with God. And to dip in the metaphor greater, he says, because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... And here he's kind of punning on the word witness. The word witness here, or martyr, is one that the, ch the early church later used to describe people who were willing to die for their faith. But it literally just means a witness, someone who has observed something. But it can be used in the sense of like a court of law. A witness is someone who has seen something, but they also testify about it. And so this was the idea with the early Christians, that they testified with their life that Jesus was worth more than their life even. And so they were witnesses, they were martyrs. But witness can also mean kind of like a spectator. And so here he's kind of punning on the idea. He's saying in one sense they were witnesses because they testified by faith that God was worth it. Even to lose their life, he was worth it. But also it's kind of like imagining yourself in a stadium with all of these people, the people of God from history past, kind of in the stands just cheering you on. And the idea is to encourage you to press on. To say, look, the people of God throughout time have put their faith in God and it's as if their example is cheering you on to go, go, keep going. Jesus is worth it. God will come through. He is faithful. Trust in Him. And it's meant to be an encouragement to go forward because people cheering us on encourages us. It's a shame that as we grow older, we, kind of, we lose that kind of instinct. But kids know it well. When Zeb was learning to ride a bike, I vividly remember Asher running along behind him, yelling out, You're a champion, Zebby. You can do it. You're a champion. You're such a champion. And he was so filled with chuff power that he forgot that he couldn't really ride a bike without training wheels. And if we hadn't stopped him, we would have ridden straight through the fence and down Darling Street and off and away. But kids, I mean, I mean, you see what happens when you encourage a kid. You just superpower them, right? You turn all the dials up to 11 and they just go. Because encouragement has that impact. And the author of Hebrews is, is trying to say that to you now. He's, he's saying, look, look at all, as you look over chapter 11 at all these witnesses to the faith, it should move you that God can be trusted. These stories were written down for your encouragement. People who endured great hostility and were examples of faith. So be encouraged. 
Run the race for Jesus. Keep going. Even if you're feeling tired and weary and discouraged, he says, press on. It's like there's a cloud of witnesses cheering you on to the finish line. But more than that, the author goes on to say, and as you do that, as this great cloud of witnesses are encouraging you almost from behind, fix your eyes on Jesus. And why? Because he is the archegos, the originator, even pioneer or founder or author in different translations of faith. And the teletos, meaning the completer or perfecter. <laughs> the autocorrect keeps, every time I wrote perfecter, I put perfecto. <laughs> the perfecto of your faith. <laughs> that he is the one who finishes and completes it. And here he's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, that Jesus is the author of and originator of faith and yet the one who completes it. We are used to the concept that someone who creates something, an entrepreneur, is not normally the person who perfects that product, that industry, the design, whatever it is. But here he's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus because he is both the originator of faith, the original example, the first one to live fully and completely faithfully, and also the one who has perfected it. I mean, just think of Jesus' humanity. He lived by faith. It, we are told in the Gospel of John, he says explicitly, I can only do what I see my Father doing. That he depended entirely on his Father revealing knowledge to him. Jesus didn't cheat on his humanity. He wasn't a baby. With an, he wasn't like Billy Madison in class, just pretending to be dumb or whatever, but really actually being an adult amongst children. Jesus had to learn language and had to grow up. It says it specifically in Hebrews, he was like us in every way except that he did not sin. Just imagine that experience of Jesus' childhood. That he would have grown up with a perfect relationship with his heavenly father and over time, presumably, realized that that wasn't everyone's experience. That as he grew, he began to see that other people disobeyed God or rebelled God. And he felt the draw and the temptation to sin. We know that from Hebrews as well. And yet over time, he realized that it wasn't just he was unique among his group, but among the world. That he alone was the son of God. Sent to die for our sin. He was a perfect example of faith. The author of faith. The ultimate example of faith. And not only that, he was the perfecter of faith. He wasn't just an example of faith. That he actually achieved the end point of faith. See, all of these people trusted in God. And particularly in the Old Testament, they trusted that somehow God was going to wipe away their sin. They couldn't see how. The sacrificial system couldn't do it. They knew that every year they had to make more and more sacrifices year after year as a reminder that sin hadn't really been dealt with, but that God had, had written them a blank check and that one day he would cash it. But they had no idea how it was to happen. But in Hebrews 10.14 we're told, For Jesus, by a single offering, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What Jesus' death achieved in a single sacrifice was what all of the deaths of bulls and goats could not achieve across all of Israel's history. To wash away sin for a single sinner. He's the author and perfecter of faith. He achieves the end point of faith. 
That is to make us perfect and new and complete. We could never do enough things to win favor with God. John Calvin put it this way, that if you were to put on a scale all the good deeds of humankind throughout history on one end, it wouldn't atone for a single life on the other. It couldn't outweigh a single sin on the other. What the sacrificial system and all our best efforts couldn't do, Jesus did when he died and he perfected our faith. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that in the eyes of God, because of Christ, you are made perfect, righteous? I heard a hymn this week. That's not that radical, obviously, but I'll get to the point in a sec. But one of the things I... One of the reasons that as a church it's important that we sing hymns is that we would be connected to the faith of other witnesses throughout other ages to say that we sing of the same truths. We are connected as one church throughout the ages. And part of singing those truths is that it becomes really clear that over time we are the same people of God. But also it's interesting seeing how emphases change. I love the way they had a robust understanding of sin. And they were able to talk about it in a way that was clear. And it wasn't because they were somehow more morbid or something than we are. But I think they had a robust understanding of grace enough to meet that sin that they might not live in shame and guilt, but be able to sing clearly of their sin, but also of the grace of God that has washed it away. But I was listening to a hymn this week, and something sounded a little off. Just listen to the words with me. It says, Since I can hardly bear what in myself I often see, How vile and dark must I appear, most holy God, to thee. But since my Saviour stands between, in garments dyed in blood, tis he instead of me is seen when I approach my God. And the reason it sounded off is because although it's close, it's not true. The idea here that When God looks upon us, he sees vileness and darkness only. But then he looks upon Jesus and then looks upon us favorably. Makes it sound like God is a great bouncer in the sky who lets us in because we've got an attractive friend. He looks at us and he's like, wrong shoes. But then, okay, yeah, come on, in you go. And it's not the truth. Hebrews 10.14 says, He has perfected those who are being sanctified. God's not naive. It's not that He can't see our sin and brokenness and that we are being sanctified and restored piece by piece. But the truth of the gospel is that the moment you have faith in Christ, faith that is spirit-enabled, you are declared righteous. You are made perfect, innocent, so that when you stand before a holy God on the final day, He will say to you, My child, innocent that's how god feels about you we know from the high priestly prayer that the father loves us with the same love with which he loves the son it's not that he just looks at jesus and be like i can't stay mad at you but your friends you know all right fine if they have to come now the gospel is that god has made you new through the sacrifice of christ that you are made perfect and to let that sink in Or to see whether or not that sinks in, I just want to try something for a sec. I want, as a church, for us to say out loud, to verbalize and say, In Christ, I am made perfect. In Christ, I am made perfect. How does that feel to even say that out loud? 
Because according to Hebrews, the gospel, that's true. You are made perfect. Once for all, he has perfected those who are being sanctified. We are not what we will be, and yet in Christ we have been made righteous. This is why he says to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Robert Murray McShane said, For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. And when you read Hebrews, it makes good sense as to why. If we want to be desperately unhappy, let's think about ourselves more and more and more. If we want to know the depths of the gospel, if we want to have strength for the race and to press on, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the one who can make you perfect and who has. I think what breaks my heart is that so many people in our city are looking for this in all the wrong places. That there is so much talk and so much focus on relationships because I believe at the bottom of it, most people are looking for what they can only find in Christ. Ernest Becker, who's a, a secular psychologist, I think, who wrote a book called uh, The Fear of Death, says this about the modern emphasis on romantic relationships and just how badly we want them and how much of life is shaped around them. He says, what it is when we, that we want when we elevate the love partner to the... Oh, sorry, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? When you desire someone so much that they are God-sized desires that you are pouring upon them. He says, we want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human partners cannot give this. So many people are looking to a relationship because they think, once I find that person, someone who would love me that deeply, I will finally feel clean, perfect, made new. I'll forget all of my faults. The fact that I'm deeply flawed and sinful, I can finally forget. But it never achieves it. Christ alone is the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who can make us new. But there is one more reason that the author gives us to fix our eyes on Jesus, as if that wasn't enough. In Hebrews 12, 2-3, he says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus went to the cross here, accordingly, for the joy set before him. How is it that Jesus went to the cross for joy? If you've read the Gospels, you will know that he was so anxious and so beset with anxiety before going to the cross that he sweated drops of blood, that he was under such intense pressure that capillaries potentially burst in his forehead because he could not bear the tension of what he was about to face in facing the wrath of God for all humankind. So in what way was Jesus going to the cross for for the joy set before him. In fact, this has led some people to say, maybe we're reading the Greek the wrong way. The word for here is the word anti, which of course might be a, a prefix that you're familiar with that usually means instead of or against and can mean that. So some have hypothesized that Jesus went to the cross instead of the joy set before him, that he would have been maybe happier in that moment to, to give in to the temptation of Satan to not go to the cross and instead of doing that, he went to the cross for us. But the truth is that almost no translators hold to this view, and for good reason. 
The first is that anti is used really only a few sentences later to, to really describe the word for in a way that there is, there's kind of no other way around. So it's clear that the author does use it in that way. But secondly, it wouldn't really fit with the passage, would it? The whole idea the author has been building is this sense of a race of trying to get to the end and a prize that's waiting there for you. And so it would be weird then to say, fix your eyes on Jesus because he went to the finish line instead of getting a prize. Now the clearest reason seems to be he went there for the joy set before him. And look what it says right after it. It says, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That was the joy that was set before him. That he knew that once he had atoned for sin, he only had to do it once because he was a perfect God-man. And that once it was done, he would sit at the right hand of God and lead God's people to their final outcome, the salvation of their souls and the restoration of all creation. That was the joy set before him. And so why is this an encouragement? It's an encouragement because no matter what you're experiencing right now, how deep doubt is ripping apart your soul, how weary you are from the year that's been or maybe the year that's ahead, how much relational tensions or difficulties are straining upon you at the moment, how much it may seem like there is just no joy before you, that if the Son of God could find joy as he was about to head to face the wrath of God, then maybe it's the case that as we follow him, we will find joy too. It's an encouragement that there can be joy, that we can press on for the prize ahead and run the race with perseverance. Cam and I have just signed up for Spartan in May. And if you don't know what that is, you're going to hear about it in illustrations from May onwards. <laughs> and all it, all it is, is, um, is an obstacle course for adults, which is something that's normally for children. But, um, but you can get adults to do it, and they have to drive a long way to do it. But the courses are generally, this one's about 15 kilometers. They're generally 15 or 21 k's. And when you start out, because they're usually somewhere in a location like this, except for the Soviet power station, that's, that's usually not in, in the vista, but they're generally set in like the beautiful countryside. And as you set out, you're feeling, you're feeling good about life. You're feeling good about yourself. You're feeling better about yourself because you think about all the people who didn't do it. So there's all kinds of just, you know, joy flowing through you. But as you sort of get to the second half of the course and the last quarter, everything starts to stack up. The cuts are all stinging. You've got like some Patterson's curse in your hands. You know that stuff, that stinging nettle sort of gear in your hands. You may have lost your wedding ring, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and as you get to the end, the other thing that starts to kick in, and you start to see it from about kilometer 18, it's like, it's, it's like they've, put, um, they've put something in the, in the land to cause it or something, but people start going down with cramps. And it's like Gallipoli, people over here being tended to and over there, like people just start to collapse because as your body just runs out of energy to keep going, they just, everything starts to cramp up. And I remember at the last one, I enjoyed running quickly past all the people cramping up, being like, ah, they probably didn't take their gels, did they? Oh, suckers. And then I got to what was, it was probably about two Ks to go and the ride engine blew as I went over one thing and I was like, that's okay, still got one good leg, so that's fine, no problem. And as I went to jump over the next kind of fence thing, that one went. And because they both seized up, I couldn't actually land on my legs. So I just fell over. <laughs> and people had to go past me like, you're right, mate? I mean, they weren't going to stop. They were, they were motoring. I was like, yep, yep, no problem. And I was just like, how am I, like, if this keeps happening, how am I going to make it through another two Ks of this? But knowing that the finish line was just there, 
I was like, I, you know what? It's that close. And once I get there, I can have a shower, I can have a meal. All of that is just there, just ahead. This is kind of the image that the author of Hebrews is saying. Saying life feels like a long time right now, but in eternity it won't. And saying Jesus endured such hostility. Just think about what Jesus endured. And then he went to the cross for the joy set before him. And remember that there will be joy in your journey too. So don't grow weary. Keep going. Keep following Jesus. See, oftentimes the thing about the Christian life is it's not so much that you need to know what to do, but you just need the courage to do it. To be brave. To press on knowing that Jesus is good and faithful and that he is working through difficulty and trial. In fact, the whole rest of, of, of chapter 12 is explaining how it is that God uses discipline, not because he doesn't like you, but because you are his child and he is growing you in deeper in holiness. And afterwards, you will, you will experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He is sanctifying you, making you new. But it doesn't seem pleasant at the time. So fix your eyes on Jesus and remember that is the God that you serve and worship and he is good even through trial. I would say last year was about as tired as I've ever gone in ministry. When, when we had the group come out to consult us, the cogs in my mind were just moving so slow, everyone just thought I was sad. And I had to explain to people, even through the day, I'm actually fine, I'm just that tired, I cannot get my mind moving. Even the guy who was doing the consult was like, um, is everything, like, you know, I haven't been too hard with the criticisms or anything, have I? Like, just, and I was like, no, no, it's fine. It's like, I'm, I'm just, everything is moving very slowly for me. And it was just like, it was like everything was in mud. And it was a time like that to remember that God is faithful and that to fix our eyes on Jesus is to not grow weary. That we won't be like, it's not forever. Certainly not in terms of eternity, but even in this life. There will be many trials and many difficulties. But remember the great cloud of witnesses who put their faith in Christ, cheering you on from the stadium. And fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, the one who has declared you and made you righteous right now and is continuing to sanctify you, that you might not grow weary. Are you heartbroken? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you discouraged? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you content? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you happy and joyful? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you grieving? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you worried? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you beset with sin? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Are you seeing great growth and, process and progress? Still fix your eyes on Jesus. You get the idea, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. And as we say this, and as we gather here as a church, it's, it seems so obvious, right? Why wouldn't I fix my eyes on Jesus? So why don't we? We don't because one of Satan's most pervasive schemes is to put us in a world full of distraction that we would look at anything but Jesus. That the things that would get the best of our time and attention, the best of our thinking, by proportion, are things that are not Jesus, that are even against him. Look what it says in Hebrews 12, 1-2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run the race with perseverance. 
So what weighs us down from following Jesus? Well, the first thing he mentions is sin. The great Puritan John Owen said, unrepented of sin unframes and detunes the heart so that it cannot sing rightly of the love of God. Satan will try to wear us down with sin so that we become bogged down with sin and shame and guilt and the cycle that goes with that and just to think, God wouldn't even love me. God's given up on me, surely. I'm not going to get through this. This is, this is just life now. To keep us from looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, to keep us looking at ourselves and our own sin and shame and instead of looking to Jesus who has washed it away and made us new and is sanctifying us. The author of Hebrews says, set aside sin. Is there a sin that has beset you over and over and over again? Then pray on it and, and draw your community into it, this, this community of faith that we have to help you to, to lay it aside so that you may not be weighed down from running for Jesus. Sin distracts us from fixing our eyes on Christ and weighs us down. But he also says there, I don't know if you noticed it, lay off everything that hinders. So there are sometimes, it's quite, in some ways it's obvious to the Christian that sin is going to weigh you down in running for Jesus. Doing the opposite of what Jesus said, of course, is going to make it quite hard to do what Jesus says. But he also says here, anything that hinders, that is things that are not necessarily sin things that are not necessarily against the command of God explicitly, but are so weighing you down that you cannot fix your eyes on Jesus and they're just bogging you down over time. And I would say, and you might have heard this phrase before, but one great author has said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll just make you busy. Because once you're busy enough, you'll come around. You'll get tired, you'll get weary, you'll get distracted, and sin will come knocking at the door. Life is set at such a pace that if you are not in the grip of sin, you are so close to it. There's a condition called neurasthenia, and it identified, uh, really, it's identifying the anxious symptoms that go with the accelerating pace of modern life. Now, if you were to guess when was, the, when was this condition identified, what, what year would you... Is anyone willing to throw out a year and just guess what year this was kind of identified as an issue? 1850, not quite, but thanks for undershooting it. You've kind of ruined the vibe of it now. <laughs> this neurasthenia was first identified and kind of you know, put out there as a condition in 1869. So in 1869, people were like, whoa, things are going too fast. Imagine if you could go there and just say, guys, I've got, I've got news for If you're not coping now... <laughs> Things are about to get mental, right? Now, it was, it was a poorly diagnosed condition and, and all of this to go with it. But all of that to say, it was quite obvious even at that point of industrialization that things were moving really quick. And we're moving a lot quicker than it did for their parents' generation and so on and so on. And it has moved exponentially faster ever since then, hasn't it? Is it the case that your life is packed with things that themselves are not sin but en masse are weighing you down to the point where you are either vulnerable to sin or you just cannot fix your eyes on Christ? Is it the case that you are that busy that you are just weighed down? 
Like that scene in The Incredibles, are there just things that are sticking? You know, you know when he's like, when he gets caught? Everyone remembers that bit, right? And the things stick to him and then they swell and eventually he just can't move because he's so bogged down. And, that, you know, it's hard to work out how did he breathe after that. But anyway, we'll let them have that. But you get the idea of the metaphor that you are so weighed down with things that you just cannot move. Is it the case that things are just moving too quick, that you need to clear things out because they're not things that are necessarily sin on their own, but they're hindering you from following Jesus. Let me give you four areas to think about, and they all start with S. Schedule. Not schedule, because that wouldn't work with that sound. <laughs> schedule. Are you just doing too much? Do you just say yes too much to things, to the point where things are so packed out in your, in your schedule that you, even, even to look at it for the next, you don't look at it for the next week because it gives you anxiety. Is it the case that you are just so busy that instead of working properly at work, you're trying to relax to try and recuperate, but then you're working at night because that's the time when you're supposed to be relaxing and life is just one big mix of work-laxing and you feel stressed and on all the time. That was one of the things that lockdown did for most people, wasn't it? It blurred the distinction between work and home life. And that's part of the, the modern busyness that we're beset with. You can be on all the time. The problem is God created you as a finite human being and you don't have the capacity to be on all the time. You're not God. You can't do it. And so your brain never has downtime to focus and you're buzzed all the time and it leaves you feeling dizzy, weak, weary and just primed to give in to sin. Does your schedule need to be pared back so that you might fix your eyes on Jesus? You might have time to meet with him in his word and behold him as your God. And to not be so busy, that you will run off your feet. That's your schedule. The second is your smartphone. Is this the thing that's hindering you? We're told, obviously you've heard it probably many times, that the average person will touch it over 2,500 times in the day. But more than that, just having it around divides your focus constantly. I had, for the first time in, I don't know, how many, maybe a decade, I had lunch with an elderly couple. And we had uh, sandwiches with those little triangles and like kind of lukewarm, t- like we had, it was the whole thing, right? And we're having this, uh, you know, lovely discussion about their life and they've been in their place for 60 years and all this sort of thing. And towards the end of the chat, my, my phone starts buzzing in my pocket. And I, even though we're talking, I can't concentrate because all I can think about is who's messaged me. Do I need to get back to them? And it kept going and going. Tom, you were one of them, so that's guilty, right? <laughs> and there was this like, there were messages going off in my pocket and I couldn't focus. The smartphones are at us constantly. And it can be a help, but it can also be a hindrance. The author of Hebrews says, throw off anything that hinders can you pare back your smartphone to where it is not such a dominant force in your life, where it's drawing so much of your attention that you cannot fix your eyes on Jesus? Do you need to get it out of your room? Do you need to put it somewhere so that it's out of sight, out of mind when you get home and not the thing that's drawing your attention? Certainly not the first thing that you wake up to in the morning. So that instead of opening God's Word... You open the Bible on your smartphone and you're already looking at the messages that are causing you or the emails that are causing you anxiety first thing in the morning. And you cannot fix your eyes on Jesus because your mind is already drawn to something else. I mean, it's worth doing something about your smartphone 
before this weekend finishes. Here's one possible thing. You can get rid of all apps that don't involve scrolling. So apps that are only, you go in there to get something done, and then it's finished. And in case you're wondering, that is not sports results. That's a scrolling app, right? That is one where you can, just, you can get into a deep dive of just looking through things. But to maybe have apps where you, just, you only go in to get something so that your, your phone is there only for what you want to use it for and not to draw endless attention. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe just have a chat with someone to say, how is it impacting you? And is it actually something that the author of Hebrews is saying, look, it is hindering you from following Christ, from fixing your eyes and mind on Christ. It's killing your attention span so you can't sit down and behold him in the word of God, whatever it is. Is it hindering you, your smartphone? So that schedule, that smartphone. The third one, we'll go quicker, is Sabbath. Do you have just a day of 24 hours in the week where you just rest? We don't do work. We actually stop to read God's word, to contemplate his goodness, and to enjoy his good creation. Or you just kind of on all the time. You take a bit of time here and a bit of time there and whatever else it is. Are you really in a, are you in a pattern of work? This is, a, this is a helpful diagnostic question. Given your current work schedule, if annual leave did not exist, how long would you last before a nervous breakdown? Is your current pattern really set to 48 weeks of overdraft and then four weeks where you try and make up for that? If so, maybe it's time to think about clearing proper time to rest so that you're not so frantic and busy and tired that you cannot fix your eyes on Christ, that you are too weary even to follow him. That's the third one, Sabbath. And the, the fourth one, because body starts with B, is soma, which is Greek for body. <laughs> and so, and soma, just, just considering that God has made you an embodied soul, are you looking after your body? Are you just getting enough sleep? Now, I don't want to make you paranoid about that. I'd, I'd heard recently that there is a, that the, the idea of needing eight hours, by the way, is a, a myth. It was, it's poor science and sort of that just to make people anxious and then people could market that and sell you all kinds of things. But we do, we do all know that as finite human beings, every night you die a little death as a reminder that you are not your own and that you do not control your universe and you have to go to sleep. Like a child. You don't sleep for as long as... Man, they can... They get like 12 hours a night. You, you want to know why they're so pumped out there? It's because they get 12 hours a night. But for you, you also need sleep. We need sleep. Is your body just too wound up? Do you need to do something to acknowledge the fact that God has created you as a finite being? That you are not capable of endless work, but you have to stop. The sign that you are overdrawn is when you start to get like a little tick. Your eye does that twitch thing, the eyelid thing. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. We're all an anxious wreck, aren't we? Like, we're just, oh. But we've all had it, right? And you know it. It's when you've been overdoing it. And it's, God has built into the fabric of his creation a reminder, hey, you're overcooked. You're redlining. It's a reminder that we are not infinite. Look, it might be, what, it might be an endless number of other S's for you. But just consider, if you are called to fix your eyes on Jesus, what is hindering you from doing this? And do you so love Christ that you would kill anything that would kill your love for Christ? 
Are you so convinced that He is so good, the author and perfecter of your faith, so worthy of your highest thoughts and affection, that you would set aside anything that would hinder you from running the race with perseverance for Him? Because you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who would tell you again and again, He's worth it. God is faithful. As you look to Jesus, it's a reminder that God is faithful. He has loved you to the point of death. Fix your eyes on Christ. Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners that you may not grow weary and that you might thrive in 2021 as a follower of Christ. Let's pray that He would do this mighty work in our hearts. Father, many of us here, even on a weekend away, are weary. We thank you for the gift of having a day work free where we can enjoy your creation, fellowship with one another, hear from you in your word. But Father, too often our lives are just busy and endless strain and we feel like it's near impossible to fix our eyes on Christ. Father, may you just remind us of the goodness of King Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who walked in the likeness of sinful flesh and yet without sin, who loved with perfect love, and who died a perfect sacrifice that all who have faith in him might be made perfect, even as you sanctify us. And Father, we just pray that through this, you would be strengthening us, that we would not grow weary, that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, you would revitalize our soul and our spirit, our mind and our heart, you might invigorate in us a love for Christ. May 2021 be the year that we, would, we can accurately say we have never loved Christ so fully or completely. And not to our glory, but as evidence of your grace and your goodness to us and of your kindness and of the work of your spirit. May we not strain forward for pride or relying on ourselves, but may we fix our eyes on Christ. And may we do this, Lord, for the sake of your holy name. Amen. We're going to respond fittingly by singing to King Jesus.